Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of film scores that people consider worth talking about. And usually we make a random drawing amongst them to assign ourselves a score to cover. But that's not what we're doing this time, for some reason. For some reason, we're trying something new. So instead, we spun the dial on our time machine and went to a random year in time. And we landed in the year... 1995. 1995. So uh, we're just going to tell you what we saw and heard (laughs) while watching the movies of 1995. Sound good? I guess. It sounds good enough. I hope it sounds good enough. Yeah, good enough for now. We'll see. (laughs) Okay. So the idea here was, what if we shifted the emphasis for ourselves from sort of obsessing over one score for a few weeks until we really felt like we knew it back and forth and were really confident that we knew what we were talking about (laughs) and shift the emphasis to just, uh, you know, tourism, visiting a place and taking in a whole bunch of stuff and uh, responding to that. Yeah, shift the focus to not really knowing everything about what we're talking about. (laughs) Look, whenever you watch an old movie, there's a little bit of time travel going on. You kind of get in the headspace of the year and of the era and of the artistic style. We've tried to do that in our prior episodes a bit. Right. We inevitably end up doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, if we do an episode about a movie from 1958, you end up spending a lot of time thinking, what were the ideas about how to make movies, how to make art, how to make music in 1958? What was the cultural outlook? And it just seemed like, what if we just sort of plopped down in the time and took in a lot of movies that were all from that same moment's outlook? Maybe that would be enlightening. What do you think, John? Was it enlightening? (laughs) It was in somethinging. Mm -hmm. What's the something? Well, I think because of the specific year that we plopped ourselves down in, I think it's a year that kind of makes it hard to have a specific takeaway I mean, I wonder if something that we're going to wind up talking about in this episode is the idea of a movie and its score being straightforward, I want to say. How so? It seemed to me like a lot of the cinematic art making here felt really down the middle and typical. I think that that might be because this was a time when just the ordinary running of things felt like it was good to do. Things weren't subversive or too self-critical. Typicality was uh, (laughs) an important part of the mid-90s. Yeah, you're characterizing America in the 90s as a uh, complacent and content place with complacent and content art. Is that what you mean? I guess that's what I mean. That's a very, very broad brush with which to paint a lot of different movies and probably not fair. But I will say that I think I enjoyed the scores to the movies that I watched in direct proportion to how atypically they treated their material. Mm -hmm. My reaction to a lot of the scores was that they felt a little tired or wrote like they were following a playbook that was a little past its prime. 
you know, if I go back into the 80s, I, I know how to play the game of getting excited in the way the 80s were excitable and sentimental in the way the 80s were sentimental. And then a decade later in the, the aughts, there was kind of a chillier, more distanced feel to things, shinier surfaces and a little more packaging, as you're always saying. And that, I may not love it, but I understand how to see it. And this 90s stuff was somewhere in between in it, a place that uh, a lot of it didn't feel like it fully found itself. Or it fully felt itself. Yeah. Transitional, uh, you know, liminal between two different emotional worlds. Yeah, I agree with that characterization. I tend to feel like behind the movie culture or music culture of a given moment is an actual emotional culture of that society at that moment. I believe that there's such a thing as emotional trends and fashions and, you know, how people process their feelings and what feelings they give meaning to and which ones they don't and, you know... What little sort of narratives you give to uh, your effort to make sense of life. Yeah, I mean, if this year has taught us anything, go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, any year can teach you this, I think. So, you know, if we're going to try and find real meaning in this exercise, it's in trying to take stock not just of, you know, what did the movies sound like, but what did people think movies needed to sound like? because of how they felt like life needed to feel at that time. And I think that's the thing that I was kind of having a hard time connecting to now because it's just a lot of what they thought felt true just doesn't feel true <laughs> anymore. The hope for this was that it would be like sinking our teeth into something and really mm, getting a real taste of it. And this had this like rubbery, you know, seaweed that like I could not sink my teeth into it. It would squeak away from me because of some ideas it had in its head. I'm so glad that you're offering me a way to blame my lack of depth in preparation for this episode, to blame that on the material rather than on myself. Because, yeah, we approached making this episode differently than others. You know, like you said, usually we spend a lot of time with the score in the movie and know it inside and out. It was kind of impossible to do that for all of the movies that we wanted to get into our heads for this time. And I felt guilty about that the whole, the whole time, but I'm glad I don't have to. See, I tried to drown that guilt in just watching more movies. I thought at least I will have watched... <laughs> watched a lot of movies so we have actually watched a different number of movies and i am going to try and get credit for the, all the additional ones that i watched alone without taking too much time on them so i will <laughs> shout out about other movies in between yes i'll give you credit you get credit you watch more movies i don't mean from you john i mean from the people i will represent the people in giving you credit <laughs> okay so it's time to start naming movies here yeah so i think the plan is we're going to take a look at what the academy award nominees for best score were not necessarily as the actual framework for the episode, but just to get a little orientation here. Okay, to orient ourselves, let's go back to the earlier years in the 90s and see what won for score. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the Oscar ceremony in 1992 for the year in film 1991, the 64th Annual Academy Awards. The winner for best score was... Beauty and the Beast, the Disney movie with music by Alan Menken. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1992, the 65th Annual Academy Awards, the winner for best score was Aladdin, the Disney movie with music by Alan Menken. And then in 1993, they had to give it to John Williams for Schindler's List because they gave everything to Schindler's List. Also, there was no Disney Menken movie in 93. That's only partially why it didn't win one. It might be entirely why. <laughs> well, because in 1994, the winner for score was The Lion King, with underscore by Hans Zimmer, of all people, and the Academy had had enough. <laughs> 
they had had enough of their own tendency, which is a tendency that I have continued to decry to this day of awarding their Oscar for score to the thing that takes the least amount of thought to recognize that there was music in that movie. Mm -hmm. They thought that something had to be done about the Disney musicals lock on the score Oscar. So they split the score Oscar into two different categories. This only happened for four years, was it? I think that's right. For the four years uh, in the second half of the 90s. I think it had existed, you know, 40 years earlier. They had had a split category for a while, but it hadn't been that way for a long time. If you go back through the history of the music categories for the Academy Awards, it has been in a constant state of flux. I think this was its most recent flux, this four-year period in the 90s. Right. Yeah, I guess it reached its flux capacity. Mm-hmm. So this year, 95, they decide to split it up. So there's a category for original dramatic score and a category for original musical or comedy score. Or... <laughs> Disney score. Yes, the designated Disney musical Oscar. Take it away, Sharon Stone. In the first category, original musical or comedy score, the nominees are... For the American president, Mark Shaman. For Pocahontas, Alan Menken, music and orchestral score, and Stephen Schwartz, lyrics. For Sabrina, John Williams. For Toy Story, Randy Newman. For Unstrung Heroes, Thomas Newman. Which, sure enough, the inaugural the Oscar, for Oscar for Original Musical or Comedy score honored the longstanding tradition and awarded it Alan to Menken, Alan Menken for Pocahontas. And Stephen Schwartz, lyrics for Yes, and when they read it off, they actually say, music and underscore by Alan Menken, lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. So this is not just for underscore. When they say musical or comedy, they mean if it's a musical, you're being nominated for a musical. So it's the only one of them that's a musical. <laughs> I mean, Toy Story is debatable. We can talk about that. But it's like you said, the pattern was... What is the easiest one to remember had music in it. Yeah. So it's the one that had singing. <laughs> and then in the other category, it is again the one that was the easiest to remember it had yep. music in it. <laughs> because it had one tune over and over that gets in your head because it's the same tune over and over. Before we say which movie that is, let's hear Quincy Jones read off all the nominees. The nominees for Best Original Dramatic Score are for Apollo 13, James Horner. For Braveheart, James Horner. For Nixon, John T. Williams. For the postman, Il Postino, Luis Enrique Bacalov. For Sense and Sensibility, Patrick Doyle. You and I were talking about what movies we had watched and whether we had watched all of the Oscar nominees. We kept getting it wrong <laughs> which movie had won. I did anyway. I kept saying, yeah, yeah, Braveheart won. Because Braveheart won Best Picture, so I, yeah. you know, assume each time when I realized that, no, Il Postino, The Postman, original score by Louis Bakalov, won the Oscar for original dramatic score for this year. And, like, each time I remembered that that was the case, it was a funny surprise to me. Oh, my God. It's Il Postino. <laughs> well, John, I watched Il Postino. I'm going to admit to the listeners, I did not specially watch Il Postino afresh for this episode, but I did see it, probably saw it on VHS in the following few years, uh, and I remember it well enough, and I feel like the preparation that I did do in regards it of listening to the title tune 
is sufficient. It's a very lovely little tune. And there's a bicycle, right? There's a postman who rides a bicycle. Yes, he rides a bicycle and brings the mail to Pablo Neruda, and Pablo Neruda helps him fall in love. But every time he rides away on his bicycle, we hear this, right? Every time anything happens, anytime there's a scene change, <laughs> there's basically two pieces in the score. This one for him, the main character, and another one for the town temptress who he falls in love with. got this kind of, you know, comfortable restaurant music sound with the accordion solo most of the time, bandoneon solo, and the piano twiddling around, and it feels very relaxed. It's not really telling the story, it's just telling you that it's okay to hear the story and that this is a human story. This is a lovely place on the coast of Italy. There's a whole tradition of Italian, I mean, this guy Bakalov, I think he was born in Argentina, but he mostly worked in Rome. A lot of credits, and so many of those movies just have, like, a nice tune, that'll be the tune for this movie. Yeah, a nice tune, and I think the Academy likes this kind of thing because it feels like a movie thing that, oh, there's a tune that you know that just goes and goes, and they like it when it's a pretty tune about riding a bicycle. You know, I feel like if this had been a song instead of being an instrumental tune, then they would have been very happy to give it best song, exactly like Raindrops Are Falling on My Head for <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they ride a bicycle. Yes, it sounds like that. It sounds like My Way is the song that it sounds like to me. It has that descending yeah. baseline chord progression. Okay. I mean, actually, legally, the song that it officially sounds too much like is this 1974 Italian song by a guy who used to work with Bakalov, who then sued Bakalov for plagiarism. Nelle mie notti più solitarie, tu la mia mente fai prigioniere. They ultimately resolved the case such that since 2013, the singer Sergio Andrigo and his collaborators are co-credited as authors of Il Postino. Yeah, I mean, with this sort of stuff, I tend to think like, you know, there's only so many notes. A lot of stuff is going to sound like a lot of stuff. I guess this one is pretty close. So does that guy like retroactively have an Oscar now? Yeah, you'd think, right? I don't know. Or should it not even have been eligible in the first place? That too. Uh, Who knows? Anyway, the point is, it sounds like a song that, oh, I can't quite remember the tune, but it takes me back to our trip to Italy. And you know you're watching a movie because you know you're hearing a movie song music song. Right. Life is a song. It's one of those. That's the thing you can do. It's perfectly nice one of those. Okay, so that's our winner here for original dramatic score. And maybe we should take care of the winner of the other category up front here, too. Because like Il Postino, it's one that I don't think we should spend a lot of time on and that I didn't watch for this episode, which might become something of a theme here. I mean, I know the songs, but uh, you want to... All right. Let me right now also address Pocahontas. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Which I watched. Pocahontas, I am very comfortable coming out on the record and saying, is not good. (laughs) 
this is a fairly embarrassing effort, I think. The embarrassment being that it's trying to take on a topic that is pretty much undisnifiable, and then they've disnified <laughs> it in a tasteless way that attempts to be progressive and insightful and balanced, but is sort of the opposite because of how heedlessly they've just shoved it into one of their Disney molds that they have sitting around the office. I don't think it's one of Alan Menken's great achievements, and I do think that some of his Disney scores are completely deserving of all of their awards. Oh, sure. I didn't mean to suggest otherwise. You know, some of those Disney movies, Menken does some actually really nice things in the underscore, and uh, I can't deny there are a few nice moments here. If you know at the very end, there's a big farewell cue that's reasonably sweepy. But even this, because the drama of the movie is so ill-founded, it's sort of exposed as just a kind of craft of the, you know, theatrical, musical, standard practice. It has to have sweep, it has to have these epiphanic moments, but it doesn't feed into any real feeling about anything. That was my experience, is that it was just sort of the to-do of this, uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein emotional paradigm just sort of happening because it's uh, a habit. There's a kind of professionalism, but it felt like such a superficial professionalism. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Okay, you should go along with that. The whole time I was watching it, I was like, no one stood up to solve the bigger problem here of thinking anything about this other than like, let's show that uh, the Native Americans were good people and the white people had something to learn. They had a thing or two to learn. (laughs) And Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz also did not really say, wait a minute, I think maybe we need to find this, not just do it. The music is pretty, but I never believed anything it was saying. Oh, right. Well, it sounds like we should move on to something else then. (laughs) As I was thinking these through, I was imagining there were connections to be made between the movies, and we'd use those for segues. I mean, I can draw a connection for Pocahontas right here. Hold on. Watch this. (laughs) Yeah, so during Pocahontas, I had that bristling feeling that a score can give me when it's trying to rope me into an emotional form that I don't want to be roped into. That's not how I want to think about these issues. And the issues here were American identity issues, sort of. And I had a similar response to a movie on this list that I think uh, other people like more than I do, which was The American President, music by Mark Shaman. Uh, Like, yeah, I don't know if that's the America myth I want to be sold. All right. Well, if that's the connection you want to make, I think the line that you draw from Pocahontas to the American president can be continued and land on Apollo 13 as well, because I think that Apollo 13 and the American president have a lot of similar sounds of Americana. Yeah. There's another movie on this list that's about trying to depict America, and that's Nixon. Yeah. So let's set up how America sounds in the American president and in Apollo 13, which I think is kind of the same school of how America sounds, and then see how Williams says otherwise. Sure. Here's this music. Is this the sound of the stirring sense of duty of White House staffers walking, talking around the West Wing of the White House? Or is this the sound of a rocket ship re-entering the Earth's atmosphere? I think what we're listening to right now sounds an awful lot like the music from the West Wing, the television show by Snuffy Walden. And of course, that series was inspired and predated by this movie, The American President. But in fact, this music is the re-entry cue from Apollo 13. 
So I was trying to articulate to myself, what are the techniques here that make this sound unmistakably American and unmistakably something American that we're supposed to be stirred by? Do you have ideas about what those are? I mean, the trumpet yeah? is a first go-to for a lot of these things. I mean, that's the first sound that you hear at the beginning of Apollo 13 is this near direct lift of Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man on these trumpets. Have you ever noticed that when people are trying to do a Copeland impression, they frequently will play a shape that's like three, one, and then four below that so that it goes down a major seventh with a third uh-huh. in between? Da, da, da. It's such a commercial Americana sound. Those three notes, it's in so many things. It's not exactly what's in Fanfare for the Common Man, but it's like a shorthand for it. It's kind of Fanfare for the Common Man meets Taps, right? Yep, that's right. It's a melody that has big, bold, open intervals, you know, rising and falling, fourths and fifths, and sort of declarative statements in the melody. And then there's something about how they voice these chords I feel like a crucial element is constant appoggiatura, which is a term in music, which means that when you hit a chord, one of the notes that you play is the note next to the note in the chord, and then a resolve from that note to the chord note. So even as we're landing on these august chords, there is kind of settling and refining happening around the edges of the chord. The other move that I feel is key is landing on inverted chords having not the root in the bass. Like a first inversion chord somehow feels inspirited, has some kind of grandeur to it when they're landing on it this way. There's the fanfare for the common man Copeland reference that everyone does, and then there's the Appalachian Spring Copeland reference that everyone does. And I think this is more the Appalachian Spring one. Here's Appalachian Spring. is a little more of a hymn. I'm sure we can find something that sounds like that, jumping now to Shaman's American President melody. And like I said, you know, this texture got distilled and fed to audiences for the next bunch of years in the West Wing theme that was obviously inspired by it. And that sounds like this. That has the same moves that we're talking about. Yeah, sure. I feel like the American President one is a little bit more of the homier, cozier side of those sounds. Sure. You know, it's a little more like it's tucking you in. America's your nice nanny putting you to bed. Well, that is exactly what this movie, what the American president is about, is America's your nice nanny. So just remind the people which of the various presidential fantasies from the 90s the American president is. Well, this is the one in which Michael Douglas is the American president, and he is a widower. And as he is sorkining his way through the wheels of government, uh, the screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, he strikes up a flirtatious relationship with a lobbyist played by Annette Bening, and they have a romance. The elevator pitch for the movie is, what if there was a rom-com with the president? Yeah. And it, I thought, strains to remind you that that is worthy of a whole movie the whole time. Like, well, then he would, in the middle of a conversation, be like, well, I'll just get on Air Force One. And she'd say, oh, of course you will, because that's so normal. 
That's the whole movie. I, I I was willing to be charmed by it. I I guess I'm not. I hate Aaron Sorkin. Another thing I'm happy to stand up and say, I can't do Aaron Sorkin. I know a lot of people that I like and respect happily watch The West Wing, but I can't do it. I found this very grating. And so again, the music struck me as telling me to love something and feel loved by something that was some kind of power fantasy of the White House. I found it kind of distasteful for that to be tucking me in. I, I had a good time. <laughs> I certainly appreciate what you're saying you find distasteful about Sorkin, and I certainly have found that distasteful about certain entries in Sorkin's oeuvre, but I like a lot of them, and this one was fine. Like, Sorkin's one interest in the world is really good comebacks. <laughs> right. And, like, put-downs. And corrections. Yeah, correction. Excuse me, sir. He likes nothing more than to have somebody say something obviously wrong so that somebody else can correct them. I just feel like everything he has ever written is a form of what you wish you'd said after you left the room. Like, his whole creative career. <laughs> career is that he left some room and he's like oh but if i had said this i would like to see the look on their face his movies are all about seeing the looks on people's faces so shaman tries to get in there because that's the game so of course it ends with a big grandstanding obnoxious speech you want to talk about character and american values fine just tell me where and, and when. And Shaman tries up. to match Aaron this Sorkin's idea of how powerful that makes him with like a symbol rock. My name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. Kashush, she said the thing, and there's sparkles and fanfares and fireworks show at Disneyland is happening. Well, you don't see that every day of the week. He's got the whole White House press corps asking each other how to spell area type. And then the, there's a key change, and now, oh, Lydian mode. Then the kingdom is coming back to life, and the prince turns back into a human. Look, I mean, <laughs> you can you want to do an ironic play-by-play, you can make anything sound dopey. Yeah, well, I'm choosing to make this sound dopey because it sounded dopey while I was watching it. It didn't sound dopey. I mean, I have to put up a resistance because all musical tricks work. <laughs> Music just works. If you do this stuff, there are feelings to be had there. But yeah, I felt like, first of all, the political naivete, it was hard to take this past month particularly to watch this movie about like what our dreams of some really righteous power plays are. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, here's a special guest critic to explain it to you. Maureen Dowd said, I could solve all my problems if I were just more like Michael Douglas in The American President. <laughs> and I know Michael's here tonight. Uh, Michael, what's your secret, man? Could it be that you were an actor in an Aaron Sorkin liberal fantasy? Might that have something to do with it? I don't know. Okay, thanks. Actually, maybe here's where I should put in that, in fact, you do hear the main theme for the American president at Disneyland. It's in the rotation of tracks that you hear while you're waiting in line for the Soarin' ride, which <laughs> while you're waiting on that line, you're looking at photographs about aviation and astronauts. So, you know, there you go. Like the thing about movie scores is you're musicalizing whatever the thoughts are, and that means you're taking them out of the rational world. So whatever political thinking or ideological thinking you've done, it's done by the time it gets to music, and now you're just kind of baking in it and sealing it in. Pocahontas in a cartoonishly extreme way, but this movie too, I felt like you are not entitled to set off fireworks about this stuff because <laughs> you have not finished thinking this through. And so the musicalization becomes a little of an offense to me because it's so committed to the trope that it's trying to do musically. And Mark Shaman does a very nice job with all of his musical theater emotional space. He's good at that. So that's why it bothered me. 
Okay, well, we interestingly have an opportunity on this very list to look at somebody who I think has in fact done more thought about political meaning and how to put really complex sentiments into music and take things that are not really rational even when they're in the rational space and render them in the musically rational space. I mean, I kind of get a headache watching Oliver Stone movies, but I really thought that the music that John Williams wrote for Nixon is very sophisticated and compelling. Yeah, I was surprised at how interesting and watchable the movie Nixon was under present circumstances where you'd think it would be the last thing you want to watch. Again, I don't know what you're talking about. And I also, you know, the Oliver Stoniness of it is pretty intolerable and it is pretty inexcusable for its wild conspiratorial speculation just slipped anywhere he wants throughout an ostensibly historical movie. <laughs> Make no mistake, that's a very dangerous thing to do. So this movie cannot be fully endorsed. But nonetheless, it's got interesting stuff in it. It's got an interesting texture to it. And John Williams is trying to contribute seriously to this fairly ambitious undertaking. Yeah, I saw an interview where he said pretty much explicitly that he wanted the music to sort of be an answer, a response to the straightforward Americana that might otherwise surround a movie about the president, like that other movie about the president we were just talking about. Right. So he takes some of the same elements, the same ingredients, but subverts them or arrays them against each other with just very interesting tensions. He's kind of using different parts of the orchestra to undermine each other with sort of hard to put your finger on it dissonances amongst them. First thing off the bat is, okay, we're in this familiar space where there's some brass going around this melody. But oof, what chord did we just go through? Where was that? Yeah, it's like he's in the Copeland brass dignity right. space, but then everything is cracked and shadowy and uh, jowly. <laughs> the idea of the movie is that Richard Nixon was some kind of a tragic figure with fatal flaws, but greatness, but dangerous. And Stone is doing a very direct, look at me, I'm doing Citizen Kane thing. <laughs> Stone is very concerned about whether or not you're looking at him. Yeah, you should look at him and notice that he made Citizen Kane again, except about Richard Nixon, don't you see? It starts off and it goes through the gate to the White House and it's going to go in the window and there's the old man. And I actually really liked this first cue. John Williams scores pushing through the gate in this gothic way to kind of land the reference and set the terms. And then the chief of staff is walking through the White House halls, sort of all at tilted angles and spooky shadows, and Williams is playing this mm -hmm. slightly discordant, slightly... Yeah, there's spooky shadows in this music. He's got it like a Dutch angle compositional style that he can go into. After watching a bunch of, you know, 90s sort of fairy tale scores, I thought, yeah, there's already intellectual texture to this. Even if it only goes so deep, it's trying to go at least a little deep. Yeah, I felt real depth in it. It's all kind of about how much to sour these harmonies and mm -hmm. 
when Oliver Stone goes into Nixon's childhood and his relationship with his mother and his meeting Pat and these memories of simpler times before the paranoia got the better of him, Williams does very much the Apollo 13 Copeland trumpet. Right. He finds a way to get the implication of a melancholy that might turn into this soured harmony later, but there's no real dissonance there. are just flatted harmonies where you wanted a natural harmony. It's a nice kind of biographical layering, you know, if in the present day everything has gone a little bit haunted house, and then in the past there's just this sense of a slight shadedness on an otherwise pretty theme. I thought that was really nicely handled. The other unusual thing he does here, and it's strong in the trailer, there's really only one place where it comes out in the movie, is the Nixon as Darth Vader kind of music. Yeah, there's some cues in this that sounded a lot more Star Wars than I would have guessed going in. It works in the trailer as part of a montage of gathering force. In the movie, it's like the drive to power motif. And when you hear it in that form, it's under his 1968 convention speech. And Williams is really saying, I, say I am going to score this. And it's going to have this big sound. We must have a new feeling of responsibility, of self-discipline. We must look to a new state and local government. The idea, I think, is to play simultaneously the effect he's having on the audience of painting this frightening and compelling picture and also to play our horror at this kind of politics and to also play the psychological depth of where this stuff comes from inside him. It didn't really work for me. It felt a little like the movie didn't have enough overall musical form to earn these really musical operatic climaxes. But I said a long time ago, I like that John Williams just goes for it and does things that might be embarrassing over the top because it's in the best spirit attempting to be over the top. Also at the very end, there are kind of chords of like the triumph and the failure and the everything that's together and it's so important. If that is what you wish, remember, always give your best. Never get discouraged. And I thought, I, I don't know, it's Richard Never Nixon. <laughs> I, I didn't I'll think he had earned quite those giant cracked Mount Rushmore chords at the end there. I don't think we got there. Maybe if it had been scored wall to wall and there had been a little more editorial clarity of intention on Oliver Stone's part, then John Williams could have gotten in there. But it's a real compositional attempt yeah. to do something serious. And uh, that stood out to me. I don't think I'm going to say that about too many other things <laughs> in this crop. Yeah, so some of that stuff reminded me of Star Wars. The Watergate break-in music reminded me of Jurassic Park, of, like, stealing the eggs. All right, well, you know, there's a history to this cue, which goes back to Williams' previous collaboration with Oliver Stone. He did a few of these. I think Nixon is their final collaboration, but they did Born on the Fourth of July and JFK. Right, right. For JFK, he wrote this piece with, like, a woodbuck click or a synth clave click. It just became everyone's temp track. And the piece in Jurassic Park is clearly him being asked, can you just write that one again? Right, it's the same piece. I mean, it's so much the same piece as this JFK piece, which was from a couple years earlier. 
But then uh, we watched another movie this year with someone who wrote that piece. A lot of people wrote that piece in the 90s. Well, all right. The other person that you're saying wrote this piece wrote it for one of my favorite scores, but I don't think he just wrote this piece. Yes, he used the woodblock, but I think he combines it with some really distinctive and effective other textures. Mm -hmm. We're playing it now. All right. Do you remember this movie? What movie is this? What's this from? Guess. I, mean, I know what it's from. The audience. I'm asking the audience. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is from the score to The Usual Suspects, music by John Ottman. And I think that the way he combines this woodblock rhythm with this cello, which is kind of careening around its range, and you really hear the kind of gritty cello-ness of it, is such a great sound. And then he's got all kinds of other cool stuff in this score. Look, I mean, I was really taken with this movie at the time, and I've come back to it here and there over the years, and it still does something for me. So John Ottman, you should say, he didn't just write the music for this. I should say, I can't think of another example of this being the case, but John Ottman is not only a composer, he is also the film editor for the same movie. So Ottman met the director, Brian Singer, when they were both in film school together, and they worked on a few little projects together as they were coming up. Ottman had already finished editing Singer's movie Public Access, which had made a bit of a splash at Sundance a few years before this. He had already finished editing it when the composer that they had lined up dropped out at the last minute. And so Ottman, being something of a jack-of-all-trades, jumped in at the 11th hour and scored the movie. When it came time to make this movie, which was sort of their next step up together, Ottman wanted to just get to write the score to it, but Singer told him, no, no, you're editing it too, which was not what he had in mind originally, because it's a lot of work. But he has done a lot of work to make this movie what it is. I suggested that we put this movie in our bucket because I <laughs> I had kind of long wanted to try to do some kind of careful analysis of this. It was always kind of this pipe dream of mine, you know, because this movie is famously concerning a trick, surprise, twist ending. Spoiler alert. Because the same person wrote the score as edited it, there's got to be some kind of clue framework you know, there must be some deep integration with the mystery of what's going on that the score is unlocking for us. And I was going to get to the bottom of it, and that was kind of something that I've always had on my back burner or something that I wanted to explore. And I think on this swatch, I think I can maybe say, no, I don't, I'm not sure that there is. I don't think there is. I don't think that there is. I think he edited it, and then he said about to score it. You know, there are a few moments where you can really tell that the editing and the scoring are hand in hand. You know, like the scene where we see the airplane landing and these jump cuts, these kind of skip ahead cuts in the sequence of seeing the plane approach the runway fall on these big drum beats. There's a couple things like that where either Ottman wearing the editor hat or the composer hat knew what the other hat was going to do, and so he orchestrated these tight rhythmic sync moments. But other than that, I think he just kind of scored it, feeling the energy and feeling the sense of things as they went along. Because after all, this movie ultimately is more about being stylish than actually being a mystery, and he's doing the style. Yeah, I think that this JFK The Conspirators cue that uh, got used a lot, I think it was probably very popular with editors because who doesn't like a regular click to work with and against? Yeah, but he does some very lilting musical lines in this movie too. I think the main title theme is a very lovely melody.
Yeah, I think the main title is one of the couple of strongest things in this score. You're sort of looking at nighttime ripples on the water. Yeah. It's undulating third going back and forth. And then it slips. I always love the way that the harmony just kind of sinks a little in the water. We're on this chord, and now we're just uh, slipped down to this one. But it kind of maintains the same through line. Yeah, I agree. I really liked that. I hadn't seen this movie in 20 years, and it was sort of a surprise to me that the genre is a little weird because the whole Kaiser Soze thing is played like it's a ghost story, and there is no ghost story in the movie. What it actually is is a crime movie with a puzzle box twist that everyone remembers told with the tone of a ghost story that there's this thing we haven't said, but it's hiding inside this story. And it's all, like you said, sort of style over substance. And that opening title, to lay all of that why we think this is cool, to lay it out so clearly in music, I think is an achievement. And it is in that, I agree, that little slip down at half step. Just from one minor chord, oh, but maybe it's a different minor chord. I think another standout in this score that has been really influential is the piecing the truth together epiphany cue at the end. Yes, absolutely. I feel like this must have been tempted in countless other movies where there's a piecing everything together epiphany. This must have, or the thing it was tempted with. <laughs> we got some emails from people who were like, I thought you were going to do an episode about Camille Saint-Saëns, and you tricked me on the last episode with your stupid joke about that. <laughs> well, there were a couple uses of Saint-Saëns in 1995, and this is one of them. This music at the end of The Usual Suspects is so clearly the aquarium from Saint-Saëns' Carnival of the Animals. which is a favorite piece of temp music. Again, I feel like this is such an editor's score because editors know to go to these particular pieces. This is literally an editor's score. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Here's the original Sansons. You can hear this piece peeking through so many movies. Yeah, this epiphany scene, you're right, has absolutely been tempted with this Sanson piece. But I think he adds interesting stuff to it and I think it just builds up so effectively. Remember in the Titanic episode, I rolled my eyes at what seemed to me totally gratuitous string section gliss to the highest note effect? Uh-huh. Because that is usually a tasteless and over-the-top effect that it's not musically fit in. The one in this movie is legitimate. Yeah. This is a fair use of the gliss to highest note possible effect. On the coffee cup drop. On the coffee cup. On the, like, moment of revelation with a zoom to extreme close-up that shocks you. You're allowed to do it there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think everything in this score is really pretty tasteful. I saw it pointed out that the main theme for uh, Kevin Spacey's character, this little saxophone, is pretty closely modeled on James Horner's score to Sneakers. Oh, yeah. I think that score to Sneakers shows up in a lot of places. Yeah, so... 
these guys were all starting out. This is a very savvy, scrappy little movie. And the editing and the fact that the music is so smartly part of the editing is all admirable. But as a compositional achievement, it just feels like it's, you know, different smart pieces of tape keeping the movie together. That's how I feel about it. All right. I like it better than that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm disappointed to, I think, finally let go of my idea that there is some sort of hidden treasure map in the score about the movie's mystery. I think he's just scoring the movie. Although I am very open to somebody (laughs) presenting their theories as to how that is actually happening. Certainly my 12-year-old heart is very open to there being a movie with a hidden treasure map in the score. I would read that novel if someone wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should write that novel. I thought about it. If anyone wants to brainstorm how that... uh, I think there's really something The Max Steiner Code. Just uh, write in. We'll work this out on Twitter. No, we've got to get a better title than that. Uh, the Click Track Conundrum. <laughs> We'd call it like R3M4 or something, Oh, right? there you go. The R3M4 Affair. That's hard to say. Send in character names. We'll get this over <laughs> the next few episodes. We'll work this out. So you mentioned that piece that was obviously an inspiration for John Ottman uh, in that epiphany cue was written by the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns. And yes, we <laughs> we did the very dumb joke pretending that uh, we were going to talk about Camille Saint-Saëns' actual film score that we didn't. We didn't actually do it. But might we talk about it someday? Yeah, I don't know. We could do silent film. We just didn't this time. It was just a joke, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then very quickly some people wrote in and said, while you're doing 1995, turns out you get to talk about Saint-Saëns after all because there is Saint-Saëns along with a whole bunch of other classical warhorse pieces worked into the score of the 1995 movie Babe. Which is about a talking pig. Which is about the best movie about a talking pig that you could have, don't you think? Yeah, I hadn't seen this in 20 years. I thought it held up real well. I enjoyed watching Babe. It held up real well, and I'll just go ahead and say, I think this was one of my favorite scores of the things that we have looked at. On this year? Yeah, I think so too. I think this was a standout score for this year. It was a real standout score, written by Nigel Westlake, who's an Australian composer. This movie was produced in Australia. And this is a movie where the tone has to be nailed for it to work. You have to be put in just the right headspace to accept this as both a fairy tale and a lighthearted children's entertainment. You know, it has old-fashioned gravitas to it, but it's also frothy. He threads such a needle on this. He was instructed to weave these pieces of classical music. In addition to the Saint-Saëns piece, there's also music by Delib and... Um, Grieg. Yeah. But it's not just that he is playing this music. He is really weaving it into his own music, and he is taking his own crunchy excursions around this music and redeploying it at will. And I think it gives such an important sense of the angle we're taking to this story. Absolutely. It's amazing to me, the tone of this movie. No other movie feels like this. Yeah, a remarkable movie and a remarkable score in terms of stakes, as we talk about sometimes. Mm -hmm. What level of reality are the stakes on? You're able to be thinking sort of for real about, you know, animal rights and farm life sort of in a real way, while it's all presented as a toy box with talking animals and fantastical cartoon adventures. 
it keeps the whole emotional field in view the whole time because of this fully classicized way of doing all of its cartoon music. Yeah, that's the genius admixture here is the cartooniness with this established classical feel and the nimbleness that he goes back and forth between them is so important. The orchestra is used with such a brightly lit, mm -hmm. joyous feel, a full awareness of the classical orchestra. It's not just being dragged out to do a couple of standard assigned things. Right. He's bringing some real... Uh, Twinkle. Yeah, the exuberance of a kind of neoclassical use of classical techniques in the orchestra. So then when he uses actual classical music, you know, this Grieg, the dance, for sheep shearing, it has a real fresh air in it, the way that it's put to the orchestra and the way that the orchestra comes through Westlake's material right into Grieg's expression. It feels completely of a piece. Mm -hmm. The classical voice is continuous, which is very hard to do. And yet also we recognize that classical quotes are classical quotes. And, you know, in a sense, we're still aware that someone has put on a record. It's part of it that they've put on a record. <laughs> It was kind of fun for me to figure out exactly what record was getting put on here. But before I play that record, yeah, I just wanted to say that he's not only very adeptly living in this material that he's quoting and reworking, but he's also kind of subverting it, and he's always willing to do something quirky and a little unexpected. Things just go a little bit askew. There's just this very wry feeling of... We're taking the fabric of established classical sounds, which means that it's an important, dignified fairy tale that you know demands your moral attention, but it's also funny animals. So for me, part of the important, dignified tone of it that demands your moral attention, that's so ably conveyed by this quote from Camille Saint-Saëns' Organ Symphony. It's his third symphony, is that right? Mm -hmm. It has this melody in it. So this melody appears in this score, and it also gets sung by James Cromwell's character. If I had words to make a day for you. You know, maybe I had heard the Saint-Saëns at this point. I certainly didn't know this song element of it, but it just felt in the movie like it was conveying this sense of the mists of history and the way things always are. You know, this narrator. And so it was that the pig found his place in the world of the farm. The fact that he's telling you about the way of the world and how animals have always been and always will be, the way the world is put together, you know, this feels like it's coming from that same voice of how the world is put together. The song, I would make a day for you, the lyrics? Yeah. I mean, not the lyrics per se, but the way the melody comes across in the movie. Because you know that song is uh, yeah. it's like a cheesy thing with kids singing in the 70s. That's right. Well, that's the record that I was surprised to find that I was playing. It's a 1978 hit by, uh, you know, two people I had never heard of, Scott Fitzgerald and Yvonne Keeley, and it sounded like this. It's a reggae hit. Yeah. I, uh, I would never have guessed that reggae had anything to do with this movie. Or with this melody, because, you know, this sense of the deep abidingness of everything that it gave me in the movie, it, uh, it came through here. This is where these words 
come from? You know, I think it's almost acknowledged in the movie that the thing that he is singing to the pig is something that this farmer, you know, saw on his TV once. Yeah. I think the movie is knowingly like this is the equivalent of singing If I Could Buy the World a Coke song to your pig. (laughs) But then it's coming from such a true place inside this farmer that it becomes joyous because the song actually came from this glorious Sansa's music in the first place. Well, yeah, they took this glorious Sansa's music in 1978 and made this song out of it. And it was a big hit in England and in Australia. And so if you knew the song, then you probably would have taken it that way. But uh, I did not know the song when I saw the movie. Yeah, I think the cultural layering in that is really fascinating. We could probably do a whole series about just the use of that tune because there's the acknowledgement that this is probably to the Australian audience. You're right. Like, oh, of course, you'd sing that song that is kind of funny to dig up that thing from our childhood right. from 20 if years ago. I had words to make a day for you. But then that song has, you know, 19th century French orchestra with an organ kind of implicit in it. And so then in this movie, yes, the theme is kind of floating around in the score. And then there's this scene where he sings it. And then he's doing big jumps of joy. And there's the sound a little bit of the original symphony arrangement, but still with folk drumming. Mm -hmm. But then, yes, it's at the climax of the movie. So you said it sounds like this is the nature of the world. This is how things are down to the roots of existence. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's how it felt to me. To me, it felt like it was about like the tension. There is a tension in this movie. It's an interesting movie between the cartoon world where you spend time watching a duck scheming with a pig to steal. I forget what they're stealing. <laughs> an alarm clock. Steal an alarm clock. <laughs> and I will say that that scene where they use the Dilib pizzicato is a about the best you can do that cartoon thing where you take the classical pizzicato piece and score the like don't wake the sleeping bad guy it's just done with such a fresh commitment to all of the tropes there and i found it so delightful but so it's a movie that has that in it it's also a, a movie about a reality where humans raise these animals to eat them and you're like well they're gonna get eaten you know and that's just the way it is and you're trying to reconcile those things. And then at the end, the punchline of the movie, spoiler if you haven't seen Babe, is that the animals break the implicit rule and some of their talking animal magic becomes visible to the human world. They do some actual things that only talking animals could do. And it crosses (laughs) the line of your sense of the rules of the universe. And there's Mm -hmm. such joyous transcendence in that there's this glorious sense of idealism bursting through whatever the fantasy of talking animals is what if you could see it in life you would jump up and cheer yeah and there's this music for the dream the emotional place that the talking animal childhood cartoon fantasy comes from like what if it got to live it's this pure imagined kind of moment and this is the music for that that's what it seemed to correspond to for me Yeah, and Westlake has set us up for that by the whole time playing with the rules of nature, the rules of reality, and subverting them, and whimsically skirting them. Like this. Maybe this is just in my association, but I thought, oh, this is like the thing that Beethoven does with the Ode to Joy, where it becomes a Turkish parade. A Turkish march, yeah. That this theme that sort of has a universal significance dresses up like the parade that we can all go to and we can experience joy that way. I thought that's such an inspired thing to mimic and to evoke. Mm. And his little tune, his original tune that you hear a lot, it's like... Sure. 
with the chromatic flattening down down is this nice neoclassical kind of Prokofievan thing. I'm very fond of stuff like that. There were just so many musical things in this movie, I thought, that makes me feel happy to hear that. What a happy sound. Oh, oh. Yeah, agreed. It's a very fine achievement. And I think it's even more of an achievement when you learn that he had a very short amount of time to score this movie. Because do you know who originally wrote a lot of music for this movie that was rejected in the end? I do. I saw this. Yeah, the answer is... Jerry Goldsmith wrote a lot of music and it was never recorded, but he originally had the job to score this movie. And, you know, what goes around comes around. He got Chinatowned. Yeah, it happened to him more than once in his career. I saw a quote in a piece written a few years ago, and the producer said that they passed on Goldsmith's score because it was too pretty, too sentimental. Oh. We needed something with more weight to it. I mean, Goldsmith is great. I would be so curious to hear what he would have come up with for this, but the tone that the score that's in it struck, you know, I have to respect the decision. If it was not the right tone that Goldsmith's music would have put, then, you know, I guess it was the right call. I assume he was able to take some solace from the fact that 20 years earlier, he did score a movie called Babe. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> it was a TV movie in 1975 about the famous athlete Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. Let's listen to some music from Babe 1975 by Jerry Colt. <laughs> Babe, the Babe Didrikson Zaharias story. Go look it up. I have never seen it. Nope, never will. Very few have. He went and fully wrote nearly all of a score to a second movie in his career with the same title, Babe. Okay, you said that little tune in the main title reminded you a little bit of Prokofiev. Do you want to go from here to more things that sound like Prokofiev or more things that are ostensibly for children but have unexpected stakes given them by the music? Hmm. I wanted to go from here to more things that end with the cartoon half of the movie breaking the rules and surprising the human half of the movie, except with the completely opposite effect. What is that? We watched another movie in this set where some talking things that don't actually talk at one point show their magic to the real people and surprise them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's the one that I was mentioning. That was the second in my little offer there. Yeah. I see these as closely paired movies, which is interesting. Yeah, we're talking about Toy Story, and yeah, you know, the comparison that I wanted to make is that this is another movie where it's so crucial that the tone be gotten just right. I think Randy Newman gets the tone of this movie even righter than I had remembered, and he does it by giving it more seriousness and adult weight than the subject matter might initially suggest that it wants. Do you disagree? No, I agree completely. Oh, good. The opposite of disagree. As I was watching it, there were so many things I hadn't heard before. And I wrote down, I have never attentively listened to this music before because it is so exactly right yeah. that I just heard Toy Story. I mean, I feel a little badly for the generalizations I made about Randy Newman when we were talking about uh, Divorce Story. I mean, Marriage Story. I That was a legitimate mistake. I honestly misremembered the name of that movie. Uh -huh. He does stories. <laughs> You know, when I said that, oh, this warm, pleasant, Randy Newman-sounding stuff, it's like Toy Story, uh, it wasn't maybe quite fair because 
Toy Story doesn't always sound like Toy Story, and that's so important to making it Toy Story. To me, the movie is made, is sealed as this magical thing that works so well. Not for the first thing we see, which is the fantasy world of the toys being played with, and, you know, he's aping his uncle doing some Western stuff. Is it his uncle? What? Who? Who's uncle? Randy Newman's. Oh, he's aping his uncle. I was thinking about the kid. I was like, I don't think he has an uncle. <laughs> no, Randy Newman is doing some Alfred Newman sounding Western shtick. Uh, but honestly, it's not Alfred Newman sounding. It's so pared down. It's a kid's cardboard box version of it. So Randy Newman does a very nice job doing the you know kids action scoring of the kid playing with his toys. And then the kid gets called away and the toys come to life. And the toys coming to life gets this music that is not about the sound of toys. It is like conspiratorial. It's letting you behind a curtain. It really struck me how important this exact music is to the entirety of the Pixar universe. I, I had exactly the same thought. I thought, wow, I've never had a conscious thought about this cue, but I think it is a turning point for the CGI. Absolutely. This cue. Because it's cool. It's not toyish. I mean, it's playful, but it's... It's also not magical. Right. It's not amazing. It's not magical. That's the point. Yes. It's like the break room or a busy corner. Uh-huh. It's a little seedy. Yeah. yeah. Behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, the break room. That's exactly right. This is the music for the actors in the scene after they've dropped character and they're smoking cigarettes. It is also strange. You know, there's a strangeness in the way that trumpet goes around its little corners. I forget what we're seeing. Uh, the shark saying howdy, howdy, howdy or something? Or some, you know, weird things come out of a box and walk by. And it's got the feeling of a scene in a movie where you're plunked down and there's a few... Sh- on the lot, right? It's like... It's, on the lot. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, it's like you're on the lot and the guy in a centurion costume walks yeah, exactly, by. Exactly, exactly. As a cowboy and an Indian. Right. Right. It has just the right wink in it. And I don't think I'm overstating it to say that this launches Pixar... If the music had stayed in the fantasy magic world, that was the first thing we heard when the toys were being played with and weren't themselves alive, which it so easily could have done, that so easily could have been the instinct. But for it to drop down to this real world, that's what all of these movies are made out of. And also it's not forced. It feels natural. It doesn't have more instruments and more effects and more cymbal rolls and more sparkles. Mm -hmm. Randy Newman, unlike Alan Menken and the going animation music style at the time, has such an easy way with the orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's not theatrical. Even all of the Mickey Mousing, of which there's tons, it's full of Mickey Mousing, but it has all been softened. It has Mm. all, it's got a felt surface to it. And you don't feel like you're being oversold a thing that you're like, ah, oh, but it's just this cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's just comfortable. It lets you in. It's great. So when I say that the instinct could so easily have been more aimed at children, here's an example of what I mean. Because I'll talk about my own instinct. The green plastic army men go on a mission downstairs in the house. All right, men. You hurry. Code red. Repeat. 
We are at Code Red. Recon Plan Charlie. Execute. So these army men get army men music. As I was watching it this time, it immediately occurred to me, oh, if I was asked to score this, what would I do? Do you remember, did you ever play the, the original Wii, Nintendo Wii, and it was like a tanks game? The little toy tank crawled around. I did have a Wii for a little while there, but I don't think I had that. So this little Wii tanks game, which is charming and delightful, has this cutesy, kind of rinky-dinkified military thing with a rat-a-tat snare. It's got little fluty flutes and... And it's very bare bones and cute. Sure, March of the Toy Soldiers. March of the Toy Soldiers. This is an old thing. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, this comes from... Babes in Toyland or something. Right, although this is even more stripped down than Babes in Toyland. This is just only, you know, three or four blocks on top of each other kind of a thing. And uh, this is what I would have written. This is, <laughs> if I had been given this, I'd be like, oh yeah, you do one of these. You do a toy march. You do a march of the toys. Instead, Randy Newman gives it, you know, like real war music. But not exactly real war music, but he takes it seriously. He's playing it not for children. He's giving it real stakes. Yeah, but it's that balance. It's real war music, but not real war music. Yeah. But importantly, it's toy music, but it is most assuredly not real toy music. Later in the movie, when they're kidnapped by Sid, and he puts on his doctor's outfit and he's going to operate. I don't believe that man's ever been to medical school. It's like real Frankenstein music. Doctor, you've done it! Hannah! But not real Frankenstein she music. Needs better now. And crucially throughout the movie, there is real Buzz Lightyear music, but not real Buzz Lightyear music, which is sort of the subject of the movie. Randy Newman's sense of gentle irony that things are referential or play-acting, but you don't have to signpost the things so that people recognize it, because of course they recognize it. You can just do it, and you don't need to do it really big to get credit for doing it. You can just do it straight ahead, pick the thing, voice it, contribute that, and step aside. It has such an ease about it. Buzz Lightyear mission log started 4072. My ship has run off course en route to Sector 12. I've crash landed on a strange planet. The impact must have awoke me from hypersleep. Terrain seems a bit unstable. He's on the same page as the writers who put these things into the movie. Like, oh, it'll be fun because there are army men going down the stairs. Yeah, I gotcha. I got how much we enjoy that they're army men. This much. I don't have to push it. I don't have to pull it. The lemonade has exactly the right amount of sugar in it. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, that is rare. For Toy Story to be exactly the right amount of serious and light. When Andy thinks he has to move and leave Buzz and Woody behind because he doesn't know where they are, and that's a sad moment for him, there's a cello line that's, you know, a little sad because he's a little sad. That's it, two chords. It's just right, and it reads we're there with him. If you compare Mencken and Horner and the standard 1995 sound, mm -hmm. who would settle for a simple cello line? Yes, Pixar is built on this, the sense that Pixar is a more emotionally satisfying place to go, you know, that it's at a higher level than these other things. I think a lot needs to be given to Randy Newman's sophistication about that kind of balance. Yeah, here, here. Basically, hey, Oscar, 
This is a better score than Pocahontas. Oh, yeah. They were nominated in the same category. What What were you thinking? Well... It doesn't have songs. Oh, but it does have songs. In fact, you... is this the first movie we've had in our list where you hear the composer singing? Oh, good question. I, I was going to say that John Ottman's hands are visible in The Usual Suspects at one point. He's one of the visions of Kaiser Soze lighting a cigarette that we see, are his hands. But, you know, he doesn't sing. Right. Kaiser Soze does not have any songs, as I recall. Oh, boy. We're coming up with idea after idea here. Somebody come at me. Let's do a <laughs> Usual Suspects musical. This is going to go. Mm-hmm. He can sing just as uh, someone comes out with his hooded face and they sing from in the shadow. That'd be cool. The police lineup, the hold-up line, you know, is a great comedy number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. It is a little bit hard to figure out how this didn't win. When it had the songs that the Academy loves to reward, I think it is because of just the knee-jerk Disney effect that, you know, we made this whole separate category so that Disney could win its music Oscar and there could still be a, another music winner. But, <laughs> of course, we have to give this one to the Disney movie. Yeah, this was a big misstep. Well, anyway, that song, You Got a Friend in Me, there's not a lot to it, but it gets the job done. That's a real good song. It's a better song than uh, I Will Go Sailing No More, which is a little on the nose for me. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. It doesn't really work, but it's good enough. I think it is good enough to get you through that moment in the movie, which is a pivotal moment. Okay, uh, segue back to James Horner for a second here. While I was watching Apollo 13 and Braveheart, which I also watched, but you didn't. You said, eh, we won't do Braveheart this time, so we're not going to talk about it. Braveheart's a pretty good score. <laughs> um, I've heard the music to the score for Braveheart, but um, I, will, uh, I will admit that I didn't watch Braveheart, even though it was the best picture winner of this year that we are examining, because I didn't want to. Well said. Thank you. Yes, I think most people assume that Braveheart won Best Score because it probably should have won Best Score, even by Oscar's own standards of not totally paying attention to the music. Braveheart was a big movie. Right. The Spartacus of 1995. Yeah. The music absolutely supports its epic tone, keeps you in the period and the level of emotion. I do think it's worth pointing out that on the Titanic episode where we said, well, this probably shouldn't have been our first Horner episode, the Titanic score sounds exactly like Apollo 13 plus Braveheart. <laughs> you could hear most of the scenes from Titanic in their earlier settings where they felt better. I mean, the music makes more sense in Braveheart. It is a better home than Titanic, and it is a better score. But uh, we could go into it at length. Maybe that'll be a whole episode someday. It certainly was on our list for it. So let's just move on. Anyway, I watched Apollo 13 and Braveheart, and I thought, well, these are okay, Horner, but I of suspect that Horner's skills are better suited to fantasies and childhood things, you know, cartoons. And I saw that he actually composed six scores this year. Huge year for him. So I checked out a couple more. So while we're on our uh, animated movies, I'm just going to tack on here that I watched Balto. Ooh, I give you credit for that. Thank you, John. And I also watched Casper. I give you even more credit for that. Yes, that's the one I want credit for, because I actually watched... (laughs) From the beginning to the end of Casper. Wow. And I 
pretty much stand by my gut feeling that James Horner's skill at getting across as much momentary color and feeling as he can squeeze in with kind of conspicuous orchestral swagger with a big gesture, look at this, and swinging his cape, his orchestral cape to the side. (laughs) I think that that contributes so happily and naturally to something like Balto, which what does it have going for it other than like, ooh, hey, look at that. Ooh, they jumped off the snow and oh, he's fighting with a bear. And, you know, <laughs> James Horner says, listen to this. And it's good. It's good that that's happening. And there were some really nice moments in there. Balto is a, is a dog, by the way. <laughs> I did know that. Who is leading the sled team to bring much-needed diphtheria medicine to kids stranded in Nome and Alaska from Anchorage, which really happened, and there's this statue of it in Central Park, and that's why you can... I know the statue. I have climbed on that statue. Mm -hmm. Well, the statue is in live action at the beginning and end of the movie, and Mary Margulies looks at it and says, Oh, Balto, thank you so much. I was the little girl in the cartoon. (laughs) Now I'm an old woman. Which is weird. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie where a cartoon person grows up to be a real person and they just <laughs> but anyway so here's a moment where the urgent telegraph medicine needed or something i forget what they're telegraphing is this sort of minimalist thing and then that becomes the snow and then that becomes the adventure in musical form in the orchestra that's nice and a movie like this that's not actually really aiming dramatically very high and is just about animation and keeping the kids engaged has room for that. The horn singing out from the orchestra. Because proportion is not an issue, I feel like in this context I can say that James Horner has some real flair and this can be moving within the Balto framework. And then Casper... Yeah, and then Casper... Here's my uh, (laughs) trivia about Casper. Casper was written by The Little Mermaid. (laughs) What? The woman who was the live-action model for Ariel and The Little Mermaid, who, if you look up the footage, she looks exactly like The Little Mermaid, named Sherry Stoner, went on to be one of the head writers for Tiny Toons. And so this was written by, like, the Tiny Toons staff, screenplay by Sherry Stoner and Deanna Oliver. And it doesn't work at all because it would have worked if it had been animated in, like, TV-level animation. But with live action and CGI, you know, and Bill Pullman and Christina Ricci running around an actual expensive house set, and they're doing these gags that should be on an afternoon cartoon, and the plot doesn't make any sense, it doesn't work at all. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that this was another example of somebody who's a cartoon growing up to be a real person. I guess it is. This is an example of someone who's a real person dying and becoming a cartoon. (laughs) That's the opposite. But he's brought back to life as like Oh, you're talking about Casper. I was talking about The Little Mermaid. Oh, I see. No, Uh, right. (laughs) Casper, there's so many different gradations of this problem. (laughs) Casper is a little boy who becomes a CGI cartoon. Sherry Stoner was a real person who became a cartoon mermaid. Who then became a real screenwriter Who then became a writer of cartoons. Anyway. um, Yeah, what does Horner do? He he does, you know, quite competent, stupid ghost comedy music. It's pretty good. Cute little uh, comic stuff. But then his main thing is he tries to get the real feeling into it. He writes this lullaby. Who 
which is again quite pretty and in a movie like this it seems only an asset to have someone writing pretty music with the whole orchestra. So I went on this excursion to these movies to see like how do I feel about James Horner when the movie doesn't seem like it has anything to say and yeah I like him better there. I think that's interesting. Okay so that's I just wanted to mention this. Good thank you. Thank you for your service. And thank you for thanking me because after I watched Casper I was like John's not gonna watch that and I'm still gonna talk about it because I just watched that. Yep. Okay, do you want to go to the thing that I said sounds like Prokofiev? Yeah, I don't know what it is. Oh, it's a, it's a submarine movie. Oh, sounds like Prokofiev. Tell me more. Well, this is uh, Crimson Tide, a score by Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. This movie and this score both owe a heavy debt to their predecessor, The Hunt for Red October, which is a movie that I really like. That score is by Basil Polduris, uh, who I kind of think of as the Zimmer before Zimmer was Zimmer. In The Hunt for Red October, and then again in Crimson Tide, there is heavy use of a male chorus singing. It's kind of Russian-sounding thing and very minor and... Yeah, I mean, this Red Army Choir kind of... Yeah. Like, halt, 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 we are on a submarine. That's a easy trope for Americans to understand the sound of Russia for a long, long time. Sure. And I understood it that way, and I always loved it. I especially love it in The Hunt for Red October when there actually is a chorus of Russian people singing Russian songs on the submarine. It's part of the movie. It's not quite part of this movie. So we watched this one because this one was nominated for an Oscar, but it won the Grammy for Best Film Composition. I don't think we need to spend too long in this movie, but I think it's interesting because isn't this sort of a point of inflection in Hans Zimmer's career? Yeah, I think it's a point of inflection in Hollywood scoring, although I don't know all, you know, what the precursors might have been. But yes, I think it's a significant one for Hans Zimmer in developing the Zimmer sound and the Zimmer machine and... Yeah, the Zimmer machine sound. Exactly. You know, we already said that the previous year, Zimmer won an Oscar for the instrumental underscore to the Lion King, which doesn't sound like a typically Zimmer thing to do. Here's something else that Zimmer wrote in 1994. Do you remember this? This is the theme music for the animated TV show The Critic, starring John Lovitz. You know, this is this uh, quirky, jazzy thing that I don't think anybody would have guessed that this is Zimmer if you just heard it on its own. I didn't know that was Zimmer. Yeah, I mean, he had been around, he had a lot of credits, but I don't think he really had his distinctive sound. not only sounds like a machine, but that he built a machine of people in a building to churn it out. Yeah, I think this is kind of the dawn of it. Don't you think this is also the dawn of a certain tone, emotional framework for action movies and action scoring? Yeah, it kind of is because, you know, if you look at the soundtrack that got released for this score, it's like an hour's worth of music and there's only five tracks (laughs) because the music just goes and goes and goes. It's this, you know, we've talked about it in some other recent episodes. This is the action accompaniment bed being born. And I feel like some of the things in here, I want to try and, as best I can, be fair and say, yeah, it 
pretty good in the context of Crimson Tide, but boy, I don't like where this is going. And some of the things in here I don't even like in Crimson Tide. It's very subservient to the picture. You know, like we talked about in our episode about Escorta Interstellar, that's kind of a niche that he carves out for himself, is being especially subservient to the picture and being very willing to really just ride along with it. And I kind of think he figures that out here. And yeah, it doesn't stand up on its own, I think, as well as a lot of the other music we've heard so far, but it was never intended to. It's fair that it is subservient, and I just need to see it as a piece of the machinery that keeps the submarine going. It really is, yeah, a cog in the machine, you know? You may as well have been on the intercoms, you know? Con, Zimmer, Zimmer, Con, keep it going down there. Radio, Con. Mr. Zimmer, what's the status on that radio repair? Con, radio, all systems are still down, sir. Lieutenant Zimmer isn't here. I think it's a pretty good tune. It's a track that got used in a lot of trailers. What about this stuff with the chopping string chords? Oh, this is the Pirates of the Caribbean sound. I guess it goes back to here. I feel torn about stuff like this because, of course, I can recognize there's real creative cleverness in it, but just this whole movie, I really felt like, uh-oh, here comes people I don't like making a movie for people I don't like. <laughs> like, this is a movie where several times the, you know, commanding officer, someone, says ass, like in the context of we're going to kick their ass, and all of the men go, ass. <laughs> lazy way of getting the kind of locker room laugh like oh it's boys club time now this feels good and the music is selling that same kind of dumb level sure. of what does manliness sound like maybe it sounds like dun, 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 dun. the drum beds at one point it's just like an actual rock drum kit and it's supposed to be bedfellows in this score with stuff that's doing mozart requiem and the red army chorus and all of that and Zimmer's willingness to reach in all of his different bins. It doesn't really matter. Is this classical? Is it rock? Is it a hero theme? Or is it this serious stuff that at some places I thought, well, this sounds a little like the Nixon score. This is like, oh, the somber tone of modern world events. And there's pan pipes. Oh man, those synth pan pipes. Don't do that. <laughs> no one needs those. The mashup of sounds that all they have in common is that yeah, maybe we can get our audience to go like, hell yeah, during this. It had a creepy kind of synthetic constructed macho thing. I thought, I don't like what they're building here. That's fair. I think that's a fair criticism because the content of the drama, I think on some level is meant to be an indictment of the masculine world of war games and war itself. You know, that's sort of the Denzel Washington character's angle is bucking up against that. I was surprised that it wanted you to think about it at all. I had never seen this and I was surprised to find that it was a movie about trying to get you to argue about, you know, whether it's insubordination or what should they do or what are the ethics but it has it both ways at the end. It doesn't really land on anything. No, it, and I think the ending is a really muffed landing. And I think that it's fair to point out that the score was definitely not in on this being a complicated topic. <laughs> 
you know, the score is playing the manliness for sure. And the fact that the movie is like, I think, trying to get you to think about the value of that and whether it's a good thing that it has pervaded such a big slice of the world's affairs. Yeah, the music didn't get that memo. Fair enough. But the music does purport to be thinking and feeling. Once you bring in that chorus, once you bring in these creeping dread chords, I almost go for it, but then I thought I'm just being pulled around. Fair. You know, while I'm complaining about Crimson Tide, we didn't get a chance, but I, damn it, I'm going to say it. I want to say, I don't think I liked the score to Apollo 13 as much as everyone else does. Did you like it? I didn't love it, no. I felt like it was taking the unthoughtful way through the material. I mean, maybe this is particular to me, but I have a hard time with fictionalizations of recent historical events that say, we figured out how to feel about this. Feel this standard way. (laughs) That's the best way to feel about it. It seemed like instead of embracing what's interesting about this situation, it just went for, you know what it is to feel noble. You know, that's fanfare for the common man. We mentioned it earlier. What does it mean? It means something good. It means something American. Aaron Copeland himself in his biography talking about how popular that piece had become to his surprise. He said it is for some reason often played at events that have to do with space. (laughs) Why? I don't know, but it's just a fixed association. Yeah, I agree. The score wasn't really very insightful. And, uh, you know, I think he pretty easily brought out some physical movement crutches that struck me as uninteresting. You know, like here's the moment when the big Saturn V rocket is on the launch pad and the main engine starts and the big plume of smoke starts and the music, what's the music doing? It's just, you know, running up some scales, up, 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 up. It sort of didn't meet the moment for me. The subject matter of Apollo 13 being a sort of docudrama about a real event that they were trying to get technically right, every way that the movie fell into stock dramatic tropes kind of annoyed me, and the music was 100% on that side of the interpretation of events, that everything was Mm -hmm. the most familiar and overdone version of American saluting when you look at outer space. This score has so many symbol roll whooshes. Uh I can take that when it aligns with feelings I'm already having, but when it tries to push me into having a feeling, or really what it seems like it's saying is not only are you having this feeling, but it gave you goosebumps when you had that feeling. You really shouldn't do it more than once a scene, I think. You can't have that many goosebumps. But it also kept pointing up to me like, well, I'm not really in the 1995 headspace, I guess, because if the audience in 1995 was having goosebumps then and then, then uh, we just have different outlooks on life. I mean, at some fundamental level, we're not experiencing this the same way. I feel bad not having been moved by this score very much because I know that a lot of people think of this as one of James Horner's finer achievements. And if you listen to it just on the soundtrack, the skill with the orchestra and the skill with this language is admirable. But yeah, I think I would have liked it more for a space fantasy that didn't purport to be about the real Gene Kranz and the real Jim Lovell and so forth. I found Horner talking about this score at the time in an interview. 
he said. What I'm trying to get out of the story is the idealism, everything that was great in the guys at Mission Control and in the capsule, the best thing about NASA, and that's a very elusive thing to bring out with a flute, but that's what I want, idealism in a very quiet way. If I go in with something you don't expect at all, it'll be just magical. Um, and I think that sounds great, but it's not what you don't expect at all. It's, right. It's what you expect at all. It is, it is all of what I expect at. Yeah, I mean, to go back to what we were saying at the beginning, a lot of these scores from this year are sort of right down the middle of what you would expect. And that's for better and for worse. You know, I think some of the other Oscar nominees that we haven't touched on can get lumped into that category. Sense and Sensibility, the Jane Austen adaptation scored by the English composer Patrick Doyle. He has a long working relationship with Emma Thompson, who wrote this adaptation. He scored a bunch of the movies that she did with Kenneth Branagh, etc. And yeah, I think Patrick Doyle shows up and writes some English pastoral music that is exactly what I would have expected. Seemed right down the middle to me, but I thought he did a very nice job of it. Yes, I think that the historical literary period drama score... I think I've said once before that it often disappoints me how little historical awareness seems to be in the music. In so many scores like this, the composer has just thought, well, if I use a string orchestra, I've fulfilled my obligation. And some light classical piano on top. And some light classical piano or a harp solo at some point. Harp sounds very classical. Whereas I think that Doyle and his scores in this style tends to show a deeper feeling for expression that evokes the 19th century and kind of a classical emotional palette. Yeah, like there are some songs that Kate Winslet plays on the piano and sings in the movie that I totally believed were authentic, pre-existing chamber songs from the time period that, uh, in fact, Doyle wrote those originally as well and then wove those melodies through his score. Yeah, the beauty of this movie is that it sets itself in period in such a graceful way. It's a very painterly kind of approach to framing and the feeling of, um, what do we call this period? Uh, Austenian? (laughs) Regency. Ah. This Regency period feeling of sort of a serenity behind whatever drama there is, that there's still a feeling of quiet. Right at the beginning of the score, there's that lullaby effect that you sometimes have to do at the beginning of a movie that's going to take you to a quieter, slower time. The music says, think at this pace. Mm -hmm. Your waves of thought should be about like this. Very poised. Poised is a word. It is a word. (laughs) Doyle's music has a lot of poise. It does. Getting inside the emotional idiom of Mozart or Schubert or Beethoven is actually the hard part. The easy part is noting that they, you know, use trills or they have (laughs) a certain figuration in the bass, but to express something within that language and have it match the drama is actually hard. And when it's done, I think it makes the movie feel authentic. I totally agree that Doyle is a real pro about this stuff and that he is able to inhabit this style and get across this classical sense of poise, as you say, and serenity. Especially when you think, well, this is 1995. The actual human beings who made this movie lived in the world where Crimson Tide was being made. (laughs) You know, it it takes a lot of clarity of artistic purpose to get here. I want to give Doyle all the credit for indeed getting there and very expertly conveying the wavelength of thought that is the milieu of these historical people. 
I don't know, I didn't totally get into this movie. It's not my favorite Jane Austen material. I think at least partially because in the story of these particular historical people, the underlying patriarchal injustice of their society is kind of foregrounded, so it's just not my favorite place to spend time. The era that they're depicting here is an era where the greatest aspiration of a lot of art was to be agreeable. The fact that there's an undercurrent of real despair and injustice in this story, and then it's told in this very pretty way, because yeah. life aspires to be pretty, created, because of the quality of the music, a feeling of, you know, gradations, shades, and it had a nuance to it, a texture that I was able to think, yeah, this is a high-quality movie, and it has aged well. I don't deny it's a high-quality movie, and I'm glad that you felt that way about it. I think it's totally possible that I might have felt that way about it if I had seen it on a different day, <laughs> but the way it struck me, that disconnect between the undeniable accomplishment of the story storytelling and the music between that and the you know fundamental injustice of the society it was depicting i don't know i didn't feel great about it at the time but yeah it is a very nicely made uh piece of movie piece of movie thank you actually another movie that addresses this that i watched because it had been put in the bucket from a viewer suggestion again we don't have any viewers listener listener uh listener suggestion was restoration with score by james newton howard which is a period movie, really with a capital P. It's like the whole point of the movie is to evoke period, which in this case is the 1660s, the Restoration Era. Robert Downey Jr. is like a court physician to the decadence of Charles II. It's this very weird movie I hadn't seen before. I actually really enjoyed it because it's so full of production stuff and ideas about how to depict this era. And James Newton Howard's score lives alongside actual period music by Henry Purcell, who was, you know, one of the preeminent English composers at the time. All of this true Baroque filigree and pomp and excitement. Howard writes music that lives alongside it and sometimes interleaves with it in what to me was a very impressive way. This is right at the beginning where he's establishing the tone of us looking back with the delight of one who reads a historical novel at this era. It starts with this clamor of the timpani and then there's this driving rhythm that's very much 90s movie music, but he's found 17th century Baroque elements then it's able to do this transition into the full personal effect in a very natural way. And the other thing, the other strategy he has is he uses this Baroque theme called La Folia that many Baroque composers wrote variations on and sort of used as a foundation for spinning out their own composition. This da 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 da. Then he creates his own variations, some of which the coloration is a little more like, well, this is maybe a 90s movie score, but he's managed to establish a sense of period that allows the movie to really be about savoring period. 
And I was very impressed because, again, it's a thing I think is rarely achieved, that new, original music can put you in the mindset of the past in a meaningful way. This movie, and people don't really make movies like this, it's very literary, it's a just episode after episode of the life of an imaginary man in 1666 or whatever year it is. It's not really well formed as a story. To have a score that suggests how one might take pleasure in that is also, I think, a rare thing. I was very impressed, so I'm grateful to the listener who said we should talk about that, well, even though we're not really talking about it. <laughs> well, I, you might have noticed I haven't been talking about it. Yeah. Probably because I, <laughs> I didn't watch it. But I, I, uh, I do think that James Newton Howard is a really interesting composer who has not appeared on a show at all before. Uh, I think he would definitely be a good subject that I hope we get to talk about both of us <laughs> at greater length uh, in the future. Part of my interest in this score is because I don't think I'd ever heard him do period like that before. And I thought, oh, he does it with uh, some real distinction here. And this score wasn't nominated for anything, but some sharp listener recognized it as worthy. Do you think that Sabrina counts as a period film as well? Gosh, I mean, <laughs> when does it take place? They've got cell phones and stuff. It's the present day, but they give him a bowler hat so that you know it's not the real world present day. Yeah, I mean, talk about the underlying myth of a movie not quite sitting right with the viewer. I mean, isn't this movie all about, wouldn't it be a heartwarming, life-affirming thing for the middle-aged man to realize that he really belongs with the young woman half his age? And wouldn't that just be dandy? Look, I mean, the problems with this movie are at a remove because if you think that the original Audrey Hepburn situation had a retrograde message, that's a completely fair critique of a 50s movie. But why they remade it and why they remade it this way, it's just very ungainly. It has that feeling of like, you know, the Gus Van Sant Psycho where they took every shot and made it the same and none of it made any sense anymore because sense is determined by, like I said earlier, by the emotional paradigms of the era. And that goes for camera yeah. work and screenwriting and, and everything. And this movie just felt like it didn't live in a real time. But this music is beautiful. Sure. You know, there's a lot of music in this movie that sort of has a piano concerto kind of feel mm -hmm, to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw a recording of John Williams himself playing the piano while the orchestra was being conducted by Seiji Ozawa. I think it was really cool to see Williams at the piano himself playing his music, and of course he, uh, you know, came up as a pianist, as an accomplished pianist. The way that the piano is constantly finding the kind of the glint around these chords, the piano notes kind of limbing the edges of where the chords are. That gives us this very particular sparkle. He's always able to find interesting ways to make things feel special, I think. And this is certainly an attractive example of that. There's really two themes in this score, and one of them is this piano solo, which is like the fairy tale music, which is built into the original Billy Wilder, that it's told like a fairy tale. Once upon a time, on the north shore of Long Island, not far from New York, that doesn't make any sense here, very, but the music is so pretty that when they stop doing the movie and just let you listen to the music for a little while, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe this is moving. And, a and then the other theme is this song. Named Sabrina. 
that is used in the movie to create this nocturnal romantic soiree, these parties that she wants in on the life of luxury and beauty. It's mood music. It's fairly high-class mood music. Sure. Williams is trying his best to cast a kind of smooth romantic spell. And when, you know, Harrison Ford and Greg Kinnear get out of the way and stop making you think, what? <laughs> There's something to it. Yeah, like you say, Williams is going to go for it, whether the movie quite deserves it or not. In the middle, in the part that's just Harrison and Sabrina going on some dates, and there's just kind of some date music. I thought, oh, is this starting to work? Oh, my God. And it's not, but it's because John Williams is bringing taste, as far as taste goes, into this construction. People who love this score because it's so romantic and so pretty, I think that's absolutely right. The score, like many scores, suggests the better movie that they really failed to make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here, here. Although he also writes some super embarrassing music when uh, she has to go on a photo shoot in Paris. All right, well, let's not play that then. Okay. In fact, I don't know how much more stuff we can afford to play here. We've been talking for an awful long time. I think there's one more of these Oscar nominees that we should definitely touch on. But before we get to that and hopefully wrap things up, are there any other tidbits you want to throw in, Andy? These were all the Oscar nominees that we've been going through, except for the one that we've yet to talk about. But the Golden Globe winner was not among these. It often isn't. It was A Walk in the Clouds, score by Maurice Char. Uh-huh. A Walk in the Clouds is a movie where Keanu Reeves, etc. Uh, no, it's a love story <laughs> where Keanu Reeves and etc. a woman on a vineyard in the 40s. It's based on an old Italian movie. It's supposed to be beautiful, sun-glowing. I don't know how to... <laughs> it's uh, an extraordinarily cheesy movie. 75 words or less, how is the music? Well, Maurice Jarre is up to his very old tricks. <laughs> is pure romance novel snow globe fantasy this snow globe happens to be a vineyard but my instinct is that a movie like that which is a legitimate kind of movie to make should be scored like il postino was with just a (laughs) tune that you get used to and it says when you hear this tune you're watching this movie and it's a lovely place to be the movie is like a song and this is the song and Jar fails to score it like that. He scores it through and through. He's got cymbal rolls and he's got crashes and discords when things go wrong. And it's Keanu Reeves on screen. For the rest of my life, I want to take care of him. I died! Victoria! I had an increasing sense of embarrassment as we got toward the end. Here's some high drama at the end of this movie. It's not even your child, she carries. Will be if she'll have me. It's uh, hard for me to understand how this won the Golden Globe, but I guess the Golden Globe is the foreign press, so they're interested in going a little against the grain of what Hollywood represents. Yeah, they're also more interested in, you know, the gift baskets that they get at the ceremony. They're famously more susceptible to uh, politicking, let's say. I think he does this with great sincerity, this score. I think this score was him trying to make something truly stirring and operatic, and it doesn't work for me. Did you, by any chance, watch any movies that are the polar opposite of this movie that you want to comment on? Polar opposite of A Walk in the Clouds. 
Oh, yes. John, also, <laughs> listener request. I think a listener request when they heard we were doing 1995. I hope you talk about this movie from 1995. Yes. Reader, I watched Judge Dredd, <laughs> as suggested by a listener. Judge Dredd starring Sylvester Stallone as Judge Dredd. Score by Alan Silvestri. Ah. I, I also didn't watch this movie. My one-sentence review of this is mm-hmm. I found this surprisingly watchable, and I give Alan Silvestri substantial credit for that. I thought this was going to be awful because it has a reputation for being awful, but it was in fact just a not-good comic book movie that sometimes had some oomph in it because Alan Silvestri really does quite a good job. What he writes isn't really musically that interesting per se, but it is grand and it is confident and it is splashy in a way that is willing to overpower any other thoughts you're having to (laughs) great effect, which is exactly what's wanted here. And the beginning of this movie, you're looking at Rob Schneider on screen for a long time. And Alan Silvestri writes this music that makes it seem like this is a pretty cool world they've made. These special effects are pretty good. It's kind of exciting to be here. Overwhelming whatever effect Rob Schneider is having. Industry's ability to go for a grand gesture when that's what's demanded is really good. The end of the uh, act one, as it were, in the movie, Max Boncito is exiled to the desert world outside the city. Let him be written. And the gates open and he's sent off into the desert. Listen to this. It's like the whole chorus of the opera comes out and sings. said when we were talking about Back to the Future, Sylvester commits so hard. Yeah. Here I was watching Judge Dredd, a movie I thought I was going to think was just terrible through and through. And no, he was committing so hard, I couldn't help but think, all right, I'll, uh, I'll take this. Well, Sylvester got some just desserts of his own because he got to score some much better comic book movies in recent years. I think his scores for the Marvel movies that he's done have been terrific, most notably for me, the first Captain America movie. I really sat up and was truly excited by Sylvester's music for that. And then he did some of the other Avengers movies too. You know, he's still at it, committing just as hard. So how about that? Yeah, it's knowing when to push the audience. So I complain a cymbal roll at a time when I'm not feeling a cymbal roll is so irritating. And a shove exactly when it's exciting to be shoved is so exciting. Yeah. Is that a musical skill or really just a dramaturgical skill? It's both. They're melded there. Especially coming right on the heels of our Back to the Future conversation. This was exciting. Yeah, I mean, this was exactly the kind of stuff that we were talking about in Back to the Future, about how he just has this instinct for when you're breathing in and when you're breathing out, and which hydraulic cylinder on your uh, roller coaster chair needs to get pumped at which time. And that might be all the more exposed to be appreciated in a movie like Judge Dredd that <laughs> I'm not fooled at all into thinking it has intrinsic interest to me. It's so clear to me that if it's exciting, it's because of the hydraulics. Yeah. 
Okay, Andy, I want to get to the last nominated score that we haven't played any music from. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Two more things I want credit for. I don't have as much to say about them. Okay. I just watched them. Thank you. I watched Get Shorty because I remembered thinking in 1995 that it had cool music yeah. that supported the tone of the it movie. It did have cool music, but most of that cool music is by Booker T and the MGs. This track, Green Onions... You've heard it everywhere. It's been in TV commercials, and it's been in trailers for other movies. It's been in a bunch of other movies. I love Booker T and the MGs. This stuff is undeniably cool. Right. I think that Barry Sonnenfeld said, we're going to use Green Onions, and now get me the rest of a score. (laughs) I watched it because I saw that the score is by John Lurie, who is a sort of interesting New York eccentric jazz musician guy who also made a crazy TV show, Fishing with John, that, that I have seen since and found amusing. I thought, oh, I want to go back and see his movie score. But actually, most of it is not the John Lurie score, and that's what I didn't realize. It's a very cleverly assembled soundtrack score put together by Karen Rackman, who is a real name at doing this. She did Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction for Quentin Tarantino, which are notably effective assembled scores. Yeah, those are beloved soundtracks, just the albums. That's right. She also did Clueless that same year. She was very influential in making these sort of cohesively cool soundtrack scored movies. It's a very impressive achievement in creating the effect of a composed score out of bits and pieces pulled from different places. Mm. It really has a feel. You know what that feel is. It makes the attitude of this movie. And so John Lurie is there filling in the gaps with appropriately related stuff. But yeah, I was a little surprised to say, oh, this isn't actually a scored movie in that sense. So we can move on from there. Alrighty. And I also watched Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington. Oh yeah, I saw that movie when it came out. Mostly because it had a score by Elmer Bernstein, who was still going strong in 1995. I thought, let's see what Elmer Bernstein did with this material. And the material is basically, what if Chinatown were about race, which is a great idea. This music has the right sound. Unfortunately for him, he had used a similar thing in Ghostbusters to this figure. Oh, yeah. If you can erase Ghostbusters from your memory, this actually is pretty good detective prowling around town trying to find clues kind of music. But with Ghostbusters in one screen in my mind and Chinatown in another screen, I felt a little like the music is taking a very light touch and not quite providing the kind of hurt. A feeling of pain might have uh, helped this movie since it was about things that could afford to be painful. While I was watching, I kept thinking, oh, Elmer Bernstein's not quite daring to really voice it. Mm. But then later I found out that he actually wrote a lot more music and his score was substantially unused. Hmm. So it may be that what's in the movie is just the lightest side of what he wrote. I don't know. Uh, I just know that what was there was good. He's, after decades of his career, still providing good support. It's a well-done, basic noir atmosphere score. Okay, you got anything else before we get to what I think is the last movie? I think I have mentioned every movie I watched except for the one we're about to talk about. Okay, which is really going to disappoint people when they find out what the movie is that we've been holding back as the last thing for us to talk about. It's this movie that was directed by Diane Keaton called Unstrung Heroes. Mm -hmm. We mentioned it before because it was one of the Oscar nominees. That's right. The score is by Thomas Newman. And again, this is 1995, which is, for no reason at all, I'll say four years before 1999. If you are a longtime listener of the show, 
you know as a fact that neither John nor I had ever seen this movie before. <laughs> yep, you know that as a fact, because if we had seen this movie before, uh, it would have come up on one of our previous episodes, because it sounds like this. I mean, golly. Right. I don't even remember, did we sort of mention its name in passing in the American Beauty Conversation saying, you know, he wrote other scores that sounded like this. No, we did not. When we were preparing for that, I remember doing a little Googling and quick listening to things. I think I probably listened to a couple seconds of this because someone had said he does some of his same sounds in the American Beauty score as he did in Unstrung Heroes. But I certainly had not taken in... It's like the same exact palette, Yeah. some of the same patterns. It feels like the same little make-believe band is playing the same instruments on the same night. I think it's the same actual band. You know, in American Beauty, we talked about how he has his guys, his players that are all specialists on different somewhat unusual instruments, you know, different kinds of ethnic percussion and uh, a little bit off the beaten path winds and things like that, and he takes them into a studio and jams with them. Here he is jamming with them in a way that just, it's impossible not to hear it as a study to the American Beauty score. Thomas Newman has compositional ideas and timbral ideas that he's always working with and they're going to self-resemble, but this goes beyond that. It really took me aback that yeah. It felt like the American Beauty score was actually a repurposing of this score. It felt like someone had said, take exactly those sounds again, if you would, please, because that's the sound we want. Well, I kind of am glad he did, though, because I don't think that this score gels with this movie much at all. And I was quite taken with the effect of the score on American Beauty, as you might recall. I felt similarly. It kind of crystallized the thing that I have not been saying very well through this whole episode, but maybe now will be easier to say clearly. The 1995 music plus drama equation kept feeling to me like it wasn't quite balancing out. And here is the example where the music was, it felt to me, ahead of the drama. Uh-huh. In most of the other cases, it felt like the drama was starting to get to a style like where Hollywood was heading in its next iteration. The camera's attitude to the characters was something that was coming in the future while the music was still playing old tropes and old emotional stories. Whereas in this movie, it felt like Thomas Newman had a forward-looking vision of uh, whatever we said in American Beauty, a slightly more rigorous, patterned kind of world. And it felt like the drama was taking place in a very old-school way. I mean, I'll just say, I don't think that this movie works. I think it's a very bizarre picture. I was willing to be semi-charmed by it. It was sort of clear that it was someone's real memoir, which it is, and that he was trying to portray uh, ambivalences about the hazy line between beloved eccentricity and dangerous mental illness and whether you're in or outside of the lines of society and navigating that as a kid. There's something there, and I thought Diane Keaton's touch with it had a friendly feeling. Friendly? Sure, I'll give you that. That supported that material. And I don't think it was where Thomas Newman was coming from. Yeah. So did you ever, while you were watching this, feel like the music had something to say to the action at all at any point? I'm sorry to say I kind of don't. In American Beauty, this rhythmic wash really felt like it had something to say about the drudgery of middle-class suburban American life and then what it felt like to break out of that. Whereas in this, I really wasn't sure what this rhythmic sensibility was meant to hook into. 
It seemed to me that the movie wanted something of a dreamlike feel. I mean, there's a few scenes in the movie where very strange and inexplicably weird situations just kind of arise at a moment's notice. All of a sudden, they're bouncing bouncy balls on their dining table. Seems like a bizarro dream world a lot of the time. Yeah, I don't feel like the music was helping me think of it that way. I think the idea was supposed to be, you know, in American Beauty, it's kind of about people who are trying to make their way through a world that feels chilly and unreal and inhuman, mm-hmm. and they're looking for the thing that feels human. And this is a movie about people who are trying to escape outward from their emotional center where there's something sad happening they're kind of trying to avoid into the escape of eccentricity. So I thought that the music was trying to be this kind of somewhat fantastical world that they willingly take on to give them a break from the, you know, feeling of tragedy. It's all about that his mother is dying, Andy McDowell, and his father is John Turturro, who doesn't always know how to help the son navigate through the emotions of that, so he goes to stay with his truly crazy uncles. Uh, one of whom is Kramer. Right. One of whom is like really Kramer, like he's just doing, <laughs> it's Michael Richards, you know, opening doors very aggressively, exactly the same way. And this is like at the height of his Seinfeld fame. So I think that the Newman music was trying to... Newman. <laughs> oh, not... <laughs> Diff different Newman, sorry. Go ahead. I thought it was trying to suggest the draw of that magic, the magic of, yeah, now we are all bouncing balls or now we all are participating in some zany scheme to trick the landlord or whatever they're doing. We're yelling antisocially. It was supposed to be the quirk as a release that holds this appeal for a kid who doesn't want to think about his mother dying. Yeah, that's right. That must be right. I think that it's somehow flipped from the way in American Beauty that that actually works, which is that yeah. if life feels like this, where do you go from there? And we talked in the American Beauty score about how it gives kind of an alternative with that very still music. Right, he kind of shows you where to go from there, and he shows you the relationship there. And there wasn't really that stillness in this score. Yeah. I don't know if it was set up quite right, but it did feel like we were getting a glimpse of future ideas that landed here and no one knew what to do with them. Yeah, agreed. Okay, Andy, we watched a lot of movies. You more than me. Sure did. 20. You watched 20 movies? Wow. Yeah. It was fun, but it's also a little bit like inviting chaos onto the show. I do feel like we invited a bit of chaos onto the show, and I want to thank you again <laughs> for uh, for really tackling that head-on more than I did. I think it was unfortunate that we stumbled on one of these 10 nominee years in the Oscars. Uh-huh. But yes, if we do some more time traveling, maybe we will try to come up with a slightly more restrictive organizing scheme. Yeah, let's circumscribe our out-of-bucket experiences a little bit more next time, but... I guess I'm glad that we uh, tried something else. You don't want to get stuck in a rut, <laughs> but now let's get back in the rut. Oh boy, what a welcome comfort this rut is going to be. <laughs> Here, let me get out this bucket. Ah, oh, I missed you, bucket. Now oh, look at look at all those balls rolling around in there. I see them with my eyes. Yeah, good. Okay, I think it's my turn. I'm going to draw a single solitary movie out of this bucket, and we're going to talk just about that score. Simple. Okay, Andy, here I go. I'm reaching in, and I have got, I have got a ball on it that says a number on it that means that we are going to talk about the single solitary score of... Okay, we are traveling back in time again. Mm -hmm. 
all the way back to 1958. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about Henry Mancini's score for the Orson Welles movie Touch of Evil. Sounds great. Sounds like one movie. <laughs> it sounds like one shot, really. <laughs> what do you mean one shot? Uh, the famous opening shot is a one Oh, that's right. That long shot. Yeah, and that's got the music in it. It's good. Let's do a Mancini score that's not about a panther. Yeah, he deserves it. He deserves it. And this movie, as I recall, the score is almost entirely source music, but it's source music with a lot of attitude that I think will be worth talking about. Hey, as we talked about way back in the Pink Panther episode, I love Mancini's attitude. It's going to be fun to hear it in the hands of, you know, a better filmmaker. Yeah, put to real use. Great. Listen, everybody, thanks a lot for coming along with us on this probably overlong journey. But uh, you got to hear a lot of movie music this time. And, you know, hey, we like listening to movie music. We try to maximize how many people we annoy and disappoint with our opinions in one episode. Here we managed to (laughs) dismiss and be not that into more movie scores that people love than we've ever done in one episode before. Congratulations, Andy. It's an achievement. But we loved Babe and Toy Story, so we did love something. Yeah, what were your favorites? I would say Babe, Toy Story, and Usual Suspects were my favorites. Yeah, notable scores of the year were Babe, Toy Story, and then maybe I'd say Nixon, Sense and Sensibility, and Restoration. Okay, all good. Those might have been my nominees. That's, uh, I think, a good slate of nominees. Oh, and also, also... Braveheart is a good score. Maybe someday we'll come back to it in some kind of James Horner situation. All right, look, if the bucket really puts a gun to my head and forces me, I will watch Braveheart for its own episode if I have to. (laughs) Hey, everybody, if you like this show, it helps us out if you write us a review. And if you want to get in touch with us, as you heard that a lot of people have been uh, suggesting things to us and telling us things that would be cool to talk about, you can do that over on Twitter, at Score Settlers. Yeah, we actually do watch them and talk about them. Yeah, how about that? How about that? Okay, Andy, time to go. We only have one movie to watch for next time. Easy peasy. Easy. All right, see you then. It won't take as long this time. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.